Welcome back to the seventh episode of Witnesses to History. My name is Keegan Gingrich, and today we are discussing a story which is quite unique. Throughout many of these stories that we have analyzed in this series, many of them so far have been the stories of the Army or the Air Force, but to date we have kind of strayed away from the war at sea. Not intentionally, but discussions of the Navy have just not been found so far. This changes today when we look at the story of Fred Turnbull and his 2007 work titled Invasion Diaries. Now, this is a much shorter book consisting of just over 100 pages, but it goes into great detail about the role of combined operations and Fred's role as a member of various units, including the 529th Canadian LCA Flotilla in the Mediterranean. It also does something which I believe is fairly understudied, which is that Fred provides an account of the Canadian military's role in the liberation of Greece. With the land invasions of Normandy and Sicily taking up the bulk of academic attention, Greece is typically ignored or overshadowed. Because of this, I think that Fred Turnbull's diary is even more important. Also, I recognize that because this is a shorter book, there is not as high of a chance of me going longer than I expect to today as I have in previous episodes, so think of today's episode as a crash course of sorts into Fred Turnbull's War Diaries. I think that everyone should read this book, and so I will try not to spoil too much of the story. I should also note that Fred Turnbull's book, or at least an excerpt of it, is available on our online exhibition um, called From Vimy to Juno, and you can get a little clip of his story and his landings at Normandy there. I'm going to be reading out part of that today, uh, but if you want to check that out for yourself and uh, don't have the opportunity to purchase the book, then you can definitely do that there, so be sure to check out From Vimy to Juno. Without further ado, however, let's get into today's episode on Fred Turnbull. I consider myself so really lucky, you know. And many, many were doing their job, doing it for, for their country. The opportunity was there. I took it. You just couldn't do it all on your own. If we're not around to tell them, how are they going to know? Frederick John Turnbull was born in Montreal on February 20th, 1925. When the war broke out in 1939, Fred was a 14-year-old in high school. As the war progressed, he took a greater interest in the global conflict and felt as though he needed to contribute. During the summer of 1941, Fred worked a summer job hammering nails into the wooden wings of Anson training planes, doing his part to contribute as a young 16-year-old. While him and his friends all had ambitions of contributing to the war, many of them would have to wait until 1942 to get their chance, and increasingly as the war went on, it became more likely that they would. Many young men had wanted to join the Royal Canadian Air Force, but the service was not keen on accepting many applicants under the age of 19, let alone 18. So when 17-year-old Fred Turnbull applied, he was swiftly turned away and told that the RCAF would reach out to him in a year when he turned 18. Following his high school graduation in June of 1942, however, Fred applied to join the Royal Canadian Navy, a service which was expanding rapidly at the time and happened to be accepting 17-year-olds with written permission from their parents. After his father reluctantly signed off on his release, Fred was a member of the Royal Canadian Navy. Completing basic training in Montreal by the fall of 1942, Fred and ordinary seamen like him were transferred to HMCS Cornwallis in Halifax for more training. 
It was around this time when Fred developed a profound interest in the recent Dieppe raid. The logistics of the operation for Fred meant a grand adventure, in his own words, of landing troops behind enemy lines. While the Royal Canadian Navy did not have the capability to train soldiers on landing craft on the East Coast in the fall of 1942, a posting by the Royal Navy in Britain requested volunteers for training as a part of combined operations. Signing up to be a part of this, Fred Turnbull boarded the Queen Elizabeth on his way to the United Kingdom. So, what exactly was combined operations? Churchill's instructions to Lord Mountbatten in 1941 might provide at least a basic understanding, and Fred makes reference to this in his book. Quote, To create a proper inter-service organization to produce the techniques of modern assault. Some of the early words in Fred Turnbull's story indicate many of the main duties of combined operations personnel from their training, and their training on landing craft particularly. This is from pages 18 to 20. We studied the roles of various landing craft. LCA, landing craft assault, LCM, landing craft mechanized, LCS, landing craft support, LCI, landing craft infantry, and LCT, landing craft tank. We learned how LCAs and LCMs are hoisted and stored on converted merchant and passenger ships, now known as LSI, landing ship infantry, and how the assault troops entered the small landing craft by climbing down scrambling nets. The duties of an LCA crew were analyzed. Coxswain, the commander, helmsman, and navigator. Bowman, ramp operator, lookout, gunner. Sternman, control stern, kedge anchor, and exit from beach. Both Bowman and Sturman helped steady craft on the beach. Stoker responds to Coxon's instructions by voice pipe and telegraph, maintains two marine engines in top condition. All crew members learned each other's duties in case of emergency. We studied the effects of tides and winds on beach landings and withdrawals, how to handle and encourage troops in the craft, and receive Morse code and semaphore instructions. On November 20th, 1942, we left the classrooms and parade squares at HMS Northney for practical training at HMS Quebec, a combined operations base located on Lac Fine in cold, damp Inverary, Scotland. We were divided into groups of four, and each group was assigned to an LCA. This unsung hero of countless commando raids and invasions would be at the forefront of major operations yet to come. The LCA fulfilled all the requirements designated by Combined Operations Authorities in 1939. From 1941 on, the design remained the same throughout the war. Length, 41 feet. Width, 10 feet. Weight, 10 tons. Speed, 10 knots unloaded, 7 knots loaded. Crew, 4 to 5 men. Troops, 35 men fully equipped. Exit by ramp. Structure, wood with bulletproof protection on sides and deck. Draft, not to exceed one foot, nine inches. Outstanding features, low silhouette and silent engines for surprise nighttime operation. During December 1942, day and night, we loaded and unloaded Allied soldiers in all weather conditions and on the beaches of various grades and soil formations. Gradually, LCA crews became more efficient, more confident, and well-prepared for emergencies, which included stranded on a sandbar, landing broadside on the beach, swamped by an open ramp door, mechanical failure, sick and drowning army personnel, and miserable, wet, numb crew members. To keep us out of mischief and in good physical condition, the authorities included sessions on a commando course. We climbed, crawled, and jumped. 
since this book is quite a bit shorter, I'm not going to go through and really go through the same themes that I have in other episodes. I think I've tried to find commentary or uh, really in-depth discussions, but it's a little bit harder to do in this book particularly. So what I've decided instead is kind of outlining the main operations that uh, Fred Turnbull takes part in, and he takes part in some pretty major ones. While he is involved in Sicily, Normandy, Dragoon, and the liberation of Athens, um, I'm not going to talk about Normandy just because while it's an amazing story, I feel like the other ones aren't necessarily looked at as much. So I'll be focusing on Sicily, Operation Dragoon, and the liberation of Athens today. Um, the Normandy invasion is obviously quite um, amazing, and you can find that on our website uh, from Vimy to Juno I mentioned earlier. Check that out there, and uh, you can do a little reading of that. It's also available in the book and uh, it is quite striking, but I want to pay some attention to the operations which maybe don't get as much attention. My diary entry for Friday, July 9th continues. At 11 p.m., we were within 15 miles of Sicily and could see and hear British and American bombers flying overhead on their way to blast Sicily. From the shore, we could see fires on the island and plenty of ak fire. By 11.30 p.m., we could see and hear air transports flying overhead loaded with paratroops. At 11.50 p.m., we manned our craft, and at midnight, the 8th Army loaded into the craft. The entry for Saturday, July 10th reads, At 12.15 a.m., we were lowered away. It was pretty grim, since there was a great wind and the davits themselves were shaking. When we hit the water, our LCAs really took a beating. At 1 a.m., the flotilla formed up in line ahead, and we started on the seven-mile run in. The soldiers were very seasick, and for the first time, I thought I would be a victim. Up in the bow, I swallowed more salt water than I thought existed. By 2.30 a.m., our ML led us within one mile of the beach, where the enemy searchlights were on us at all time. However, for, fortunately for us, we could not be seen. At 2.35 a.m., number four craft and our craft, number five, went in, and thus, the troops of the British Eighth Army were just about on the shores of Sicily. A few hundred yards off the beach, we were receiving heavy fire from enemy nests. However, we hit Amber Beach without any casualties. We soon withdrew the craft after unloading and made our way back to the ship just as dawn was breaking. Ferried troops ashore all morning, emptied the ship of all troops by 12.30 p.m., Pulled out from Sicily about 3 p.m. and arrived in Malta about 5 p.m. 64 years later, I still remember the departure from the Strathnaber and the approach to the Sicilian beach. We were bobbing up and down, buffeted violently by a heavy sea, sometimes hitting the scrambling net draped over the side of the ship. Infantry soldiers began coming down the nets, shadowy figures wearing helmets, backpacks, and carrying enough weapons to keep an assault platoon in action indefinitely but no life jackets. Our LCA was held by bow and aft cables to the ship, but there was a fear of losing men between the ship and the LCA, though the same men had practiced landings with us many times before. Burdened with equipment and wearing heavy army boots, there would have been no hope for them had they fallen between the ship and the landing craft. Fortunately, we were on the lee side of the ship, which gave us protection from the worst of the wind. I watched the soldiers come out of the darkness, balance themselves on the narrow deck and drop into the bottom of the craft where there were three benches, one down the middle and one down each side. I directed some of them with a wave of my arm, but neither the craft nor the drill was a mystery to them. They were well trained. 
Then the coxswain commanded almost simultaneously, Let go forward, let go aft. I released the bow hook and the coxswain, from his position opposite me, shouted down the voice pipe to the engine room, half speed ahead. The coxswain was in charge of the craft no matter the rank of the officers the craft carried. His trickiest first duty was casting off from the ship. If one hook was released too slowly, the boat could turn sideways and possibly swamp. When we cast off from the ship, I was more afraid of the sea than the landing. We moved out from the protection of the ship and went straight into mountainous seas. The spray came over the bow of the boat and soaked me almost immediately. It was a rough ride for me, but rougher for the soldiers. The small craft would sail to the crest of a breaking wave and then crash with a bone-jarring thunk to the bottom of the trough. We hadn't been bucking the violent seas for long when I began to hear the infantry soldiers coughing and throwing up. I figure partly from the seasickness, partly from the vibrations of the engines, and partly from the tension of the impending landing. We began our seven-mile run to the beach in single file going about ten knots per hour, but when we got close to the beach, the lead landing craft gave us a light signal, one that couldn't be observed from shore. We lined up abreast as we had practiced so many times before. As we came closer to shore, the heavy seas gave way to a quite manageable swell, and I began to see the waves breaking on the beach. I was curious to see what the beach was like. We were told to expect a sandy beach without mines or obstacles. The intelligence was good. About then, Italian and German machine guns began firing from the shore. I could hear the bullets whispering harmlessly overhead, not like at Normandy where we became accustomed to the pinging of ricochets off the steel jackets of the landing craft. Flares popped high overhead and shimmered over the dark sea until they disappeared into it. Minutes from the shore, the sea eased, and I could see the wash rolling up on the beach. We slowed speed as we came closer until I could hear scraping under the bottom of the craft. Then the coxswain ordered, Lower ramp. I lowered the ramp by rope, then I grabbed the bow line and jumped onto the beach to steady the craft. The soldiers needed no pushing. They scrambled out of there, their heavy boots scraping the floor, glad to be on solid ground again. I watched them disappear into the darkness inland. We had landed almost without incident. I can recall how surprised we were in finding the correct landing objectives considering the weather conditions. We were also amazed that somehow we were able to beach in shallow water and I was able to open the ramp without being swamped. Surprisingly, we had little difficulty withdrawing from the beach as the rough weather subsided at daylight and we had no problem returning to the Strathnaver to help transport more troops to shore. One aspect of the landing I vividly recall was the enemy searchlights referred to in my diary entry of July 10th. It is better described by Joseph Schull. A searchlight knifed out from the land, swung toward the craft, and illuminated every man's face in a white glare. Then it swept on, apparently having revealed nothing to the watchers ashore. I have wondered why the searchlights did not detect us. Was it because of the low silhouette of an LCA? Was it the heavy sea which hit our craft? It was possibly a combination of both. Strangely, the poor weather may have helped us. In a final report, Admiral Sir Ramsey, commander of the Eastern Tank Forces, confirmed the weather was an ally. Casualties to shipping and landing craft were less than anticipated. This was due to the unexpected high wind, which got up PM on D1, lulled the enemy coast defenses into a false sense of security. He continued with his report. The performance of the landing ships and craft was uniformly good. Creditable seamanship was displayed. The D&D reported the intensive training for Husky was to pay dividends. As a combined operation, it went almost without a hitch. 
The next entry is about Operation Dragoon, and if you don't know what this is, uh, well, I'm going to tell you, and actually, uh, you will be told by Fred Turnbull. During June and July 1944, as the Allied armies advanced eastward into Europe from Normandy, our leaders agreed that another major landing was necessary to reinforce the Allied progress and distract the German army in northern Europe. They did not agree on the method necessary to achieve the objective. Prime Minister Churchill supported a plan to concentrate Allied progress in Italy by pouring in additional troops to tie up German forces in that area and provide an entry to southern France. Failing agreement on that strategy, he would concur with another major landing on the west coast of France in the Bordeaux area. On the other hand, U.S. President Roosevelt and his advisors favored a strike on the French Riviera coast of southern France, which would allow Allied forces to sweep northward, strengthen the push eastward, and trap thousands of German troops. The U.S. plan, codenamed Dragoon, prevailed. HMCS Prince David, with new LCAs on board, met HMCS Prince Henry in Naples, Italy, on July 31, 1944, to prepare for the operation under control of Rear Admiral L.A. David, U.S. Navy. My diary entry reads, July 31st, Monday, in the morning still sailing close to the North African coast. By the afternoon, no land in sight. At 4.30 p.m., land sighted off Port Bow, Italy. At 5.30 p.m., passed by the Isle of Capri and were entering Bay of Naples. On our starboard side could be seen Mount Vesuvius. At 6.30pm, we dropped anchor off Naples. It wasn't hard to realize that there had been severe fighting here. Buildings could be seen badly battered. Nevertheless, it appeared a beautiful city. The famous Italian sunset over Mount Vesuvius was a great sight. August 1st, Tuesday. Lifted anchor and sailed out of Naples at 1.15pm. Made our way south along Italian coast in a very small convoy. Dropped anchor around 4.30pm at Agripoli, a little village in hilly country. Swam in afternoon off coast of Italy in Tyrian Sea. Went on maneuvers at night and got back to the ship at 11.30pm. The purpose of the maneuvers was to test our new LCAs. No troops were on board. So there we were again, vacationing in a warm climate, the same treatment we had experienced before Sicily and Normandy, send us on a warm cruise before going into action, similar to allowing a choice meal before the execution. Our four-man crew of deceased LCA 1151, Daisy May, remained intact as we took over our new LCA 1391 and christened it Daisy May II. We only had time to paint the name, but not the figure. Then a surprising event was recorded for August 2nd. Wednesday. Out on maneuvers in the afternoon. Rubber dinghies were brought on board the ship, and we tested them by towing them behind the craft. Rubber dinghies? Small rubber boats? What the hell was this all about? We soon had the answer. Somewhere in the Mediterranean, in the near future, we would be part of a commando-style, pre-dawn operation in which darkness and silence were vital. Each LCA with 40 French commandos would tow a dinghy occupied by 10 additional commandos. We're going to skip ahead to the landing itself. The diary entry for August 15th starts shortly after midnight of August 14th. At 12.30 a.m., land could be seen very clearly. The mountains of the south coast of France. At Z-0045, the PT boat left us and we are now on our own, heading in. We deployed and our direction was now north, 7 degrees east and slowly we approached the beach doing only 800 revs. 
On one engine, on both sides of us, flares were now being thrown from the shore, and although everything was lit up, they could still not see us moving in, or were withholding their fire. Suspense! We were barely moving through the water, making as little noise as possible, expecting at any moment to be fired upon. Still, the flares were landing close by, still no firing. As I lay behind the gunner's cockpit, scarcely breathing for fear of making a noise, I could feel the tension. These free French commandos were all crouched, guns cocked, waiting for our craft to touch the beach and step on their native soil again. As I looked at my watch, I could see that we were going to hit the beach later than expected. The zero hour was supposed to be 1.30am. It was now 1.45am and we were still moving snail-like towards the beach. Getting closer, I could see high cliffs with very small stretches of beach. Still no firing from shore. Still silence. Still the pitch blackness of being lit up by red and blue flames. Then it happened. The silence was broken by machine gun fire ashore. The enemy was firing seaward, knowing that something was happening, hoping that we would fire back, thus giving our position away. Some of the bullets came mighty close and could be heard hitting the water close by. We were now very close. The beach could now be seen very clearly. A very tricky beach. We had to cut it in on an angle to hit dead on. Slowly the ramp was easing down. At 2.10am, our craft and the craft of our force hit the beach, and with the lowering of the ramp, the free French commandos left the craft and could be seen advancing inland at a run. As we left the beach, firing could be heard ashore and then silence. Some German had fired his last shot. On Plague de Royale, the French commandos were making history. About one mile out, our flotilla formed up behind an American PT, and we were on our way back to the ship. In another five hours or so, the main assault force would land. Our job was done. We had landed the commandos who were to destroy important communications, thus making way for the main assault. By 3.30am, we were heading back at 1800 revs. There's now a moon coming up. At 4am, we were passing the Eels d'Ars, which was now ablaze. Two and a half hours ago, it was in German hands. Now the Allies were taking it over. We had to stop for a while before passing the islands because of heavy firing. The salvos of our cruisers could be heard in the distance firing on the shore batteries. We continued on our way later. The ships had moved in about 7 miles. It was about 5am that we sighted the Prince David. We went alongside and were hoisted by 6am. It was now daylight. In the distance could be seen E-boats, German gunboats, and American PT boats battling. In two hours the main assault would be taking place. At 6.30am, a German corvette was hit by a salvo from HMS Dido, off our port quarter. It was one of the grimmest sights I ever saw. The enemy ship was absolutely red hot and flames were jutting out. A few minutes later, her ammunition went up and the ship broke in half and slowly sunk. At 7am, nine German survivors were brought on board. Six of them had been badly burned. Three of them were alright. Stepping on board, one of them in his arrogant way gave the Hitler salute. We lifted anchor, and as we approached the spot where our craft had gone in six hours earlier, I could see hundreds of American LSTs and LCIs, destroyers and small landing craft. It was now 8am. The assault on southern France had begun. This show was practically as big as D-Day. Troops were streaming ashore by the thousands, and there seemed to be very little enemy opposition. The French commandos had done their job well. Overhead, Allied planes kept watch, but they had no opposition. Our two LCMs were lowered and sent ashore with supplies. At 1.30pm, we lifted anchor and sailed from the coast of southern France in a small convoy in a southern direction. 
Now, this very last section is the liberation of Athens. And again, I don't want to give too much away out of the book, um, but I found this really striking and I think you're going to really enjoy it as well. October 13th, Friday. In the afternoon, we were told that we were to take part in the operation and liberation of Greece. We moved all our stores into the craft and all kit and stood by through the night. When told we would be liberating the Greek mainland, we envisioned a huge armada of allied destroyers, cruisers, troop ships, and small and large landing craft. We didn't know that our seven craft of the 529th flotilla would be heading for Athens and its harbor, Praeus, on our own without naval gun support, accompanied only by a few troops and fishing boats and LCTs. Nor did we know that one of our objectives was to explore the shoreline to find the best landing spots for the main invasion fleet, which was not due to arrive in Athens until October 16th. My diary entry of October 14th attempts to describe the liberation of Athens, one of the highlights of my wartime adventures. October 14th, Saturday. At 1am, the landing craft of the 529th flotilla formed up in line ahead of the Greek island of Poros. It was a very black night, but quite calm. About 1.15am, Greek fishing boats bearing Greek troops, LCTs bearing British troops, and MLs formed up. At 1.30am, this strange convoy was headed for the Greek mainland. It was very strange to see the fishing boats in a convoy. Due to their slowness, it became very monotonous in our craft as we barely moved through the water. We carried no troops in our LCAs. In LCA 1432, we had with us an RN lieutenant, a reconnaissance officer who knew the beaches and geography of Greece and who had made extensive reconnoiters on Greek islands in the mainland itself. About 4.30 a.m., dawn was breaking. It was a dawn that spelt liberation for the Greek people. Only 10 miles ahead lay the Greek mainland and the seaport of Piraeus. The only danger which confronted us in this operation was mines. We had been told that the enemy had evacuated Athens and most of the Greek coast, but the enemy had not forgotten to lay mines, and as daylight increased, we could see the mines bobbing in the water off our starboard side. The MLs had the job of shooting them off, and the explosions really shook our craft. About 5.30 a.m., our craft, 1432, left the flotilla, and we went full speed ahead towards Piraeus. In the distance, surrounded by what may be called billowy mountains, lay the city and seaport. It seemed unbelievable that we were now heading for the mainland by ourselves, and I began to wonder if the Greek people of Piraeus and Athens knew that we were on our way in. What I am about to write now is an event in my life that I will never forget, something that will forever dwell in my memory as a great unbelievable experience. It was about 6am when our craft was only a mile or so offshore that we saw the first sign of welcome. Two signaling flags could be seen on a Greek trawler, signaling the word welcome. We went alongside the boat. The mayor of Piraeus and some officials stepped onto our craft and embraced us and, as is the Greek custom, kissed us on both cheeks, beaming the most welcome smile I ever saw. This welcoming party told us that the whole city was waiting for us at this early hour. The mayor stayed on board our craft, and we made our way into the city. Everything that was waterborne came to meet us. Boats' whistles and foghorns were blowing. Everywhere, there were boats coming towards us, waving, throwing kisses, and literally going wild. We could just about make our way through the water as they came alongside. I was spellbound. One lone LCA with six allied men on board were being welcomed in a way which, to my mind, could never be equaled. We were the first allies to enter a port of the mainland of Greece in their liberation. A surprise even greater was awaiting us. 
Church bells could now be heard ringing, and the closer we came to the main harbor of Piraeus, the more we could see more of the people, lining the streets, standing in masses on the jetty. Finally, we entered the main harbor itself. On both sides, there was one solid mass of people, waving, dancing, cheering. All we could do was wave back. We couldn't tell them how much we appreciated their welcome. It was an event that one reads or dreams about, but never realized. But here I was, witnessing it myself. Unbelievable. There seemed to be no end to the shoutings, whistlings, and cheering that resounded in our ears. We left the main harbor and observed the many small harbors of Piraeus to get a suitable landing jetty for the rest of our craft and troops. Every jetty was the same. Masses of people. I now began to wonder what would happen when we tied up alongside. But I was not long in finding out. We tied our craft alongside the main jetty just south the city square, and there we were mobbed, absolutely mobbed in every sense of the word. I tried to step on the jetty to tie up, but it was impossible. I was pulled up into the swarming people. Men with tears in their eyes shook my hand. Women weeping through their arms about me. Children clambered over me. It was unbelievable. My state of scruffiness, having had no wash for about 18 hours, made no difference to them. A few feet from me, one of my chums was hoisted into the air and then I found myself in the same position. Flowers were being thrown at us. I finally managed to get back to the craft, but there was no respite there. It seemed that the whole population was standing on the deck of an LCA 40 by 10. They wouldn't move. They stood there and cheered the most throatiest welcome cheers I ever heard. One young girl of 14 or so threw her arms about me and literally cried her eyes out, saying something of her brothers being shot by the Germans. Flowers were now being thrown in our craft. A huge bouquet with the Greek church flag attached was set in our cockpit. Palm leaves were being thrown around our crew. We now took on the hopeless task of leaving the jetty, but the people stayed on the craft. Now we could see the rest of our LCAs moving into the harbor loaded with cheering, shouting Greeks, carrying flowers and palm leaves. It was impossible to keep the craft underway. The boats which two hours beforehand had come out to welcome us were also now in the inner harbor. Looking on the jetty, I could now see Greek troops stepping onto their homeland and being carried through the streets of Piraeus. How we made our way out of the harbor, I'll never know. Mechanically, my arm was still being raised up and down in answer to the greetings of people in boats and on shore. After finally persuading the civilians to leave the craft, we got clear of the harbor and headed our craft in the direction of Piraeus Airfield to observe the beaches. It was now only about 8.30am. It was a very clear, sunny morning. Our course to the airfield took about half an hour. Here people were coming out to greet us and were showing us where the other beaches were mined and where there were coral reefs and other underwater obstacles. We finally found a place to beach our craft close as possible to the airfield, and once again we were being mobbed by the Greeks as they showed their welcome. The Greek and British troops were following us into the beach in the rest of our landing craft. The people cheered and clapped as every troop stepped on the land. Partisans fired rifles into the air as a form of celebration. I finally was able to have a talk with one of the civilians who could speak English. I learned facts of the German occupation. Children starving, men beaten for no reason at all, men shot as hostages. For about two hours, our craft brought troops in and the welcoming cheers never slackened. Once again, our LCA 1432 had to leave and explore new beaches. We beached at the town of Volos. When we had been about 500 yards off the beach, there were only a few people standing there waving. By the time we hit the beach, the whole town's population stood there and literally pulled us out of our craft. They crowded around us and cheered. Then they rang the church bells. 
Four of us walked through that town shaking hands at every step, real hand clasps of friendship and welcome. When we were just entering under the town arch, which had the words, Welcome Our Great Allies, with British and American flags draped over it, a very elderly woman came up to me, bent at my feet, and wept, and very softly whispered a prayer. We were then taken to the Greek Red Cross Hospital and walked through every ward. Children, starving, just bags of bones, women in great suffering caused by the German occupation, and soldiers wounded in guerrilla fighting, waved from every bed. One nurse told me in very good English that I was making some of these people smile for the first time in three and a half years. The greatest feeling of sorrow, joy, and pride combined that I ever felt came over me. We must have spent two hours walking through the different wards. We were then taken to the place where the German firing squads used to take their toll. On the wall could be seen the marks where stray bullets had found their mark. We were then invited to drink wine. This took place in the house of one of the leading citizens of Volos. We were treated like kings. Three lovely daughters washed our face and hands and washed our hair. Even a barber was brought in so that we could have a shave and a haircut. They realized that we hadn't been able to wash since the day before. We left there at again about 4 p.m. And as we walked back to the craft, we were again mobbed. We finally left the people with their cheers ringing in our ears. About 5.30 p.m., we got back to the main harbor of Piraeus, where all of the craft were now situated. It was now raining, but nevertheless, the people were still standing on the jetty waving at us. I was so tired that I immediately fell asleep, tired with excitement, and still finding it difficult to realize that a freed people could give such a welcome. This is from Fred's obituary from last year. Returning to Montreal after the war, Fred completed his studies at McGill and met his future bride, Grace, at a YMCA dance. They eventually married and he settled into career with Montreal Trust, moving up through postings in cities across Canada as a trust officer, branch and regional manager, and eventually vice president. Whenever and wherever he settled with his family, Fred spread his humor, dedication, and devotion to the community, coaching minor hockey and raising money through volunteer organizations like Lions Club and Kiwanis. After retiring in 1990, Fred and Grace moved to Ottawa, where he relished the political and historical atmosphere. He published a book, Invasion Diaries, in 2007 through Veterans Publications, based on a diary that he surreptitiously kept during the war. Available in libraries and bookstores, Invasion Diaries is regarded as a unique first-hand account by a young sailor of some of the crucial amphibious invasions in history. Frederick John Turnbull, aged 96, of Bedford, Nova Scotia, passed away peacefully on March 29, 2021. While I've touched on some of the main events in his life and his book, it's still certainly worth the read. Um, he was trained as a historian at McGill University in Montreal, and he tells a really brilliant story of his own experiences with the larger historical record interwoven within the text, which a lot of these really great um, writers do. Uh, it's really a unique perspective on the war from a role which is typically not documented as much uh, as more you know, traditional roles in the war, such as being an infantry soldier or a pilot. So I highly recommend you check this out. I thank you once more for tuning in to this episode, Witnesses to History. This is episode seven. You will likely hear another one or two episodes from me in this series. Um, but after that, it will probably be taken over um, by someone else at the Juno Beach Center, and it will be excellent. So thank you once again. Have a great day. Take care.